Imagine a man who defied his parents by giving up the chance to be a doctor to follow his dream of becoming a high-wire performer. He was also an acrobat, strongman, entertainment promoter, inventor, as well as the first known white man to cross the Kalahari Desert on foot and survive. This is the tale of one man who had an amazing life. Today I tell you the story of William Leonard Hunt, better known as the Great Farini, on the 172nd episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeffrey Kelly, your host and storyteller. I trust all is going well. Time for the local weather report. The temperature here in Chicagoland keeps fluctuating between 0 and 30 degrees Fahrenheit. And although I'm not one who usually complains about the weather, it's starting to get on my nerves a little. Come on, spring, we're waiting. But you didn't come today to hear me cry about the weather. You came for a good story, and I I think I've got one. I heard about this man on another podcast. I think it was the You Are Not So Smart podcast by David McRaney. You Are Not So Smart is a wonderful podcast that explores self-delusion. If you're interested at all in finding out why people do the things they do, give it a listen. Anyway, he just briefly mentioned to the great Farini... So I looked him up, and yes, I quickly found that I wanted to learn more. Now, I should point out that a lot of today's story comes from a show called Canadians, Biographies of a Nation. But there was also a good Mental Floss article on the man, and a few others. Links to all these will be available in the show notes, blah, 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 you know the routine. Anyway, it's quite a long one. This guy had an amazing life with a lot to tell, so much so I didn't fit it all in, but the gist of it's here. So why don't you pour yourself a hot cup of joe and let me tell you about the man known as Farini. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. I wept and I whimpered, I simpered for weeks, while she spent her time with the psychosis freaks. The tears were like hailstones that rolled down my cheeks. Alas, and alack, and Alaska. I went to this fellow, the blackguard, and said, I'll see that you get your desserts. His thumb to his nose, he put up with a sneer. He sneered once again and said, Nerds, Oh, he floats through the air with the greatest of ease. I pray that someday while he's up there he'll sneeze and fall down and ruin his flying trapeze so my love will come back to me. He once wrote of his parents that he took pleasure in disobeying their commands. He was born William Leonard Hunt on the 10th of June, 1839 in Lockport, New York, close to the Canadian border. Bill was a rambunctious child with amazing energy, something his mom and dad never understood. 
His father, Thomas William Hunt, was a very strict, ambitious man who wanted Bill to take life seriously and work towards a real profession, something like a doctor. Both his parents were very strict disciplinarians that did everything in their power to stop him from pursuing those things he really wanted to do. They expected him to stay at home, do his chores and study hard, but no matter what they tried, no matter how hard they punished him, he couldn't be stopped. Even something like swimming, something he excelled at, was against his parents' wishes. His mother would sew up his collars and sleeves of his clothes so he couldn't take them off for swimming, but that didn't stop him. He would swim in his clothes or rip them off and get the older girls in the neighborhood to sew them back up. In 1843, the family moved to Bowmansville, Ontario, and it was there Bill saw something that would increase the tension between him and his parents. It was the circus. When the Wetlands Dramatic Equestrian Circus came to town, his parents told him he couldn't go. But when he saw the parade go by with the elephants and the acrobats and such, he couldn't resist. So against his parents' wishes, he snuck in. He was instantly seduced by the glamour of show business seeing things that were like something from a dream. He took a special interest in the acrobats, the high-wire performers. He found the whole atmosphere exhilarating. Later, back at the farm, the 14-year-old boy began to set up his own circus. His circus was complete with music and various circus entertainments, and he began to make money. This drove his father crazy as he thought it was an embarrassment to the serious, straight-laced, respectable life that he thought was important to his image within the community. Even with being whipped as a punishment, the young boy didn't stop. He built his own high-wire apparatus, putting up copper wires a few feet above the ground in the family barn, and began to practice over and over again. He was determined to learn how to wire walk. He also constructed a small trapeze to learn how to do the things he had seen the acrobats do. He mastered tumbling, and to be a strong man, he began to work on a weight training program. The entire thing drove his father crazy, as he thought the whole enterprise was embarrassing. At some point, his parents must have realized that they couldn't stop Bill from doing those things that he wanted to do. So rather than trying to stop him, they made a deal. He could keep doing what he was doing as long as he began to apprentice as a doctor. Bill agreed and began working with a local doctor learning the trade. His dad probably thought that eventually common sense would prevail and Bill would certainly be a respectable man. But on October 1st, 1859, while dad was away in England on business, any hopes that Bill would enter a proper profession disappeared. He was asked for the fee of $100 by the Durham County Agricultural Fair in an attempt to give their little typical Boren County Fair some life if he was willing to do a high-wire act across the Ganaraska River as part of the festivities. Bill couldn't pass it up. In an attempt to keep his identity secret, he took on the name Signor Farini after the Italian physicist, statesman, and historian Luigi Carlo Farini. A newspaper article for the Port Hope paper that morning said, This afternoon at four o'clock, Signor Farini will make a grand ascension, as the phrase runs, on a tightrope stretched across the creek from the brick buildings on either side of the stream, north of Walton Street Bridge. 
The rope was stretched from the fourth floor of the two buildings on each side of the river, 70 feet in the air, and by 3 p.m. the crowds began to form. At a few minutes before four, he appeared, dressed like an acrobat, complete with silk tights and a pole in his hands. He also featured a long, waxed mustache, which stretched out horizontally on his upper lip like two striking points. Slowly and carefully, he positioned his feet on the rope and began to walk. The crowd looked on nervously. He slowly made his way to the other side, and once there, he was greeted by a mass of applause. When the first walk was done, he began to get fancy, doing stunts like standing on his head, hanging by his heels, and a strongman routine in which a rock was broken on his chest. He walked back and forth, with and without his pole, and even walked while blindfolded. It was a tremendous success, but a few weeks later, when he greeted his father at the train station who was returning from his trip, things didn't go well. Dad had heard about his show, and he wasn't happy. The atmosphere quickly turned ugly. He wrote of this meeting later. And then my father said, I am grieved by what you have done. This news was a great shock to me, and now, instead of being penitent for the shameful manner in which you have repaid my kindness and care, you delight in having disgraced your family by coming a low common mountebank. And this was the end of their relationship. It wasn't long before Bill left home to pursue his dreams. He wrote, Scalding tears of anger started down my eyes as I went forth into the open air. I would not darken my father's door again. For a while, he performed at several fairs in Ontario before joining Dan Rice's floating circus and performing at various places on the Mississippi River as a tightrope walker and strongman. Eventually, he found his way to Niagara Falls. Charles Blondin was a famed French tightrope walker and acrobat. He made a name for himself in 1859 by crossing the Niagara Falls on a tightrope near the location of the current Rainbow Bridge. His stunts included carrying a camera out on the wire and taking a picture of the crowd midway across. He used a bicycle, he was blindfolded, he pushed a wheelbarrow, and even cooked an omelet on a stove while on the wire. When Blondin said there was no one on the face of the earth that could walk across Niagara Falls on a wire except himself, Farini took exception and began issuing challenges to the Frenchman. On August 15, 1860, the great Farini made his first walk across the falls, and he was a huge sensation. From then on, Farini and Blondin began trying to outdo each other, or maybe not. Some reports say that Blondin never really answered Farini's challenges, and it was more of a one-sided thing, with Farini trying to match or outdo the stunts of his rival. One of the biggest differences between the two was on the business end. Blondin would do his act and then pass around a hat to collect from the crowd. Farini was more of a businessman, negotiating deals to make more income. He even made arrangements with the regional railroads to get a percentage of the ticket sales from passengers heading out to Niagara Falls to see his show. One of Farini's gimmicks was, at the halfway point across, he would lower himself down on a rope to the deck of the Maid of the Mist, about a hundred feet below, and enjoy a glass of wine with the passengers. Soon he would climb back up. This took an amazing amount of strength, and I have read that he only did this once because through fatigue he almost didn't make it back up. 
Even though he drew bigger audiences and made more money than Blondin, he was always considered number two. After all, Blondin was the first, so after one season, he moved on. He did something unexpected. He went back home. But he found that, with the way he dressed and acted, he didn't quite fit in with the people back in Ontario. So he decided to go back on the road. But before he did, he met a girl, Mary Osborne, and they were married in 1861. She became his show business partner, but unfortunately, this partnership would end up in tragedy. During the show on December 6, 1862, at the Plaza Torres Bull Rink in Havana, Cuba, Farini was carrying Mary on his back across the rope. As they approached the other side, the crowd began to cheer. Mary made a huge mistake and let go of Farini with one arm to turn and wave to the audience. She lost her balance and slipped. Quickly, Farini hooked his foot on the rope, whipped around and reached out and grabbed Mary's dress, and for a moment it seemed he had saved her. But slowly the dress began to tear. It gave way. Farini could only watch helplessly as she fell face first 60 feet to the seats below. She died five days later. The heartbroken Farini, after laying her to rest, had himself baptized as Guillermo Antonio Farini. For the next two years, he disappeared from public life. But in the summer of 1864, he returned. After a short time playing for P.T. Barnum and then returning to Niagara Falls where he attempted to walk across the falls in stilts, a stunt that didn't go well, he traveled to London. It was there he introduced his new protege, the eight-year-old boy who called himself El Nino, an expertly trained acrobat. Who was this handsome young boy, people began to ask. Rumors went around that he was actually the son of Farini and Mary. Some thought he was a runaway that Farini found wandering the streets of Boston. This beautiful young man with curly blonde hair's real name was Samuel Westgate, who was legally adopted by Farini and would be part of the act from then on. The two became a huge sensation, doing amazing stunts and death-defying acts. El Nino was as daring as his father. The press couldn't get enough of the pair, now called the Flying Farinis. They toured England and Ireland for several years, even playing the legendary Crystal Palace, performing 70 feet in the air to 22,000 spectators. But by the time the 1870s came around, Farini was now in his early 30s, and was smart enough to know he was getting, well, too old to do these amazing stunts. For a while, he and El Nino went into seclusion. He grew a long beard and walked around, acting like a dark, mysterious genius. When he returned to the theater, he was now a trainer and manager, and his first new act was Lulu, a beautiful female aerialist, billed as the eighth wonder of the world. She was a blonde, blue-eyed, 16-year-old splendor that was a sensation from the start. Crowds were stunned as they watched her performing her high-wire act. She played all over Europe and then the United States. Broadway, Chicago, Philadelphia, every big city. And along the way, Lulu received many adoring young men backstage who wanted to take her out. They would buy her flowers and sometimes even offer marriage proposals. During this time, Farini met and married an English woman named Alice Carpenter. The best man at the wedding? Lulu. 
Varini and Alice would end up having two children together. Lulu continued to amaze crowds till one day in 1876 in Dublin, Ireland, when she had an accident that would change the way people felt about her. She slipped and fell to the ground during her act. Her injuries were bad, but not life-threatening. But it was what happened at the hospital that changed things. There, the doctors were shocked at what they saw. As she disrobed for her examination, they discovered a shocking secret. Lulu had something that, well, women weren't supposed to have. You see, Lulu wasn't a woman. She was a man. It turned out she was actually Farini's adopted son, who once called himself El Nino. Once her or his secret was out, he continued to perform, still using the name Lulu, but didn't hide the fact that he was a man. In fact, he grew a mustache, but continued to wear fancy dresses in his act. Eventually, in the 1880s, Lulu joined the greatest show on earth, and eventually married and had a daughter. One could only wonder what all those men who offered her or him flowers and proposals thought of this revelation. For Farini, it was never a problem. By this time, Farini was working as an inventor, trying to combine science with thrills and illusion. The Royal Westminster Aquarium, which was a huge entertainment palace in London, was having financial difficulties. They called on Farini to see if he could help. Farini created something that would give audiences a death-defying thrill. His new act would attempt the impossible. It was something of his own invention, something he called the human cannonball. In his act, the cannonball was a woman, a real woman this time, the beautiful 14-year-old Rosa Matilda Richter, who went by the name of Zazel. Like Lulu, Zazel would become a huge star. She was featured at the aquarium for an extended period of time, performing sometimes twice a day to pack crowds, tens of thousands of people, for a single performance. Lewis Cook wrote in the billboard that the breathless silence that always preceded the act while it was being prepared only added to its intensity and the graceful bow of the young lady who had the temerity and muscular strength to withstand the shock and the presence of mind to guide her flight never failed to receive a round of rapturous applause. Farini was her manager and received most of the money from the act, so when Richter began asking for more money, Farini secretly began training additional women to perform as Zazel. At some point it must have been discovered, as Richter began billing herself as the original Zazel. But the mood in Europe over these apparent dangerous acts began to change, falling out of favor. At the same time, Farini went through a messy divorce, so Farini and his best acts, including Zazel, went to America and joined P.T. Barnum's Greatest Show on Earth, and Zazel became the circus's biggest star. Around 1882, Farini returned to London, and it was there he became interested in what was known at the time as human freaks. He signed acts like The Man in the Iron Skull, The World's Most Tattooed Man, and Dwarf Earthmen who were actually pygmies from Africa. His biggest act, though, was Crow, the missing link. Crow was a dark-skinned child who had some unusual features, like being completely covered with hair, which included a track-like mane of hair that flowed down her back from between her shoulder blades. 
that allowed Farini to present her as Darwin's missing link. It's not known where Farini met the young girl. He claims that he had found her in the jungles of Siam, but that's highly doubtful. At this time, Darwin was still alive and his theory of evolution was new, and many people were looking for the missing link between man and ape. To many, Crow was their proof. Unlike many who were called freaks at the time, Crow was never exploited. She performed and displayed herself in her own terms for most of her adult life. She was free to do as she pleased and spent the last 20 years of her life in a private apartment, entertaining guests and neighbors with her cooking and charming personality. Africa, the dark continent, became a fascination with Freini and even brought Zulu warriors over and put them on display doing their war dances. People flocked in huge numbers to see the act. This led to one of Freini's biggest adventures. By this time, Lulu, or El Nino, his adopted son, had become a photographer. The two of them, with others, traveled to the Kalahari Desert in the heart of South Africa in 1885. Farini overcame many obstacles, becoming among one of the first white men ever to survive the crossing. On this trip, he reported to have found something that, to this day, still bewilders the world. He claims to have discovered the ruins of an ancient kingdom, the lost city of the Kalahari. There has never been any real evidence that he actually found this city, and since 1932, at least 25 expeditions have been launched to find it, using the directions that he described in his book that he wrote about his travels. There are still expeditions looking for the city today, but it still remains a mystery. After returning, he got married for a third time to a German concert pianist named Anna Muller. He had finally met the love of his life, and the two lived happily together until his death. In later years, he became more of a businessman, settling down and making lucrative investments. He bought a home and became co-owner of one of the world's largest talent agencies. Yet, he couldn't stay away from the act. In 1888, he organized a stunt in which pioneer balloonist Thomas Scott Baldwin jumped out of a hot air balloon at 3,000 feet. He would use a new invention of Farini's, something most thought would never work. It was called a parachute. The crowd, who were almost certain that they were going to see a man jump to his death, saw Baldwin land safely on the ground. That was the last big stunt Farini was ever involved in. In his later years, Farini retired to Forest Hill, London, and then to Toronto, Canada. He spent most of his time with horticulture, painting, and sculpting. And he continued to invent. One of his strangest inventions was something called the roller boat, a boat that rolled over the water like a log. It was a complete failure that lost him a lot of money. In Ontario, he was a very neighborly man who loved to talk. He would exercise every day and ride his bicycle all over town. As far as his neighbors could tell, he never seemed to miss the good old days in show business, but would spend his time entertaining the children with his stories. The great Farini died of influenza on January 17, 1929 in Port Hope, Ontario. He was 91 years old. His beloved wife passed away two years later. Bozo's Circus is on the air! Bozo, the world's greatest clown, 
A little bit before I go, I was thinking that while doing the story that, you know, you always hear about the importance of supporting children and how if this guy or that girl would have had more support as a child, they might have been something great. And yes, of course, supporting your children is very important, but every once in a while you hear of someone who overcame all the odds, who was never offered encouragement, or like in this case was told not to do what they wanted to do, and yet somehow they still achieved his or her dream. I think there is something in surviving an obstacle course that does something to a person. What? I don't know. Maybe those who were told by a teacher, you'll never be a great artist, and they give up, they were not meant to be a great artist because if they had that real strong desire, they wouldn't have let one small-minded teacher or parent stop them. Though there are a lot of talented, successful people who did have the proper encouragement as children, so hey, what do I know? I'm just thinking. Anyway, how about the ending credits? Like I said, support is important, like the support many of you give to our little podcasting network. You can help support this small business by being one of the good people by visiting psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N, and look for the Patreon link at the top. And, of course, a sincere thank you to everybody who already supports the show. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find so many amazing podcasts waiting for you there. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Your story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars. Those really help. And remember, links to all the sources that I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out from the heart for those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. It is so much appreciated. I'll be back in two weeks. Thank you for listening.
coffee with Jeff. Met a girl from Bean Town. Jeff was always hanging around. She drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, my coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. More coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with